Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady and I'm here with Lou Weiss, who is president of All Metals and Forge Group. He's also the founder of Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we're going to be speaking with Lewis Black this morning when we talk about El Monte and the work that they do. Lewis, thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, thank you, Tim, for having me. So uh, just a little bit pre-show, uh, you were giving us uh, the benefit of kind of a quick rundown about El Monte. I wonder if you'd do the same thing for our audience. Uh, yes, well, my name is Lewis Black. I'm the president and CEO and founder of El Monte Industries. We're the largest producers of tungsten concentrate outside of China, although China is the dominant player in our sector, about 83% of the world's tungsten is produced there. And a little bit of tungsten is in pretty much every part of your life, from automotive to aerospace, defense, medical, uh, a lot of the new green technologies, anodes, cathodes, semiconductors. And that's give us, always gives us a very unique insight into what the future holds, because ultimately all of our customers are vertical and they supply their end customers are the IBMs, the Apples, the Teslas, so, so we have a, a very, as I said, a very good insight as to what's worrying them and how they see this is going to be playing out going forward. I'm curious, Lewis, what is worrying manufacturers about not just tungsten, but you also uh, are pretty fine tuned on rare earths? Well, the US government classifies tungsten as a rare earth metal now. Uh, there's, a, there's a bill making a bipartisan bill making its way through Congress and the House that actually clearly classifies what they consider to be rare earth metals, which now also includes lithium and manganese. But I think what's really concerning people is what are they gonna do? For instance, they, they have increasing demand for metals that are very difficult to procure outside of certain sources. So for instance, whether it be lithium, whether it be tungsten, um, tungsten, let's just talk tungsten for a minute. I know this very well. 90% of all the world's tungsten comes from between China and Russia. So you can automatically see if you're a consumer of tungsten, it's a concern that 90% of your supply has to come from two countries that perhaps don't share your values or that you wish to take a vacation in anytime soon. So what do you do to, to resolve that? And that's really what's, what's worrying them and, and keeping them up at night. The only comment and joke that I can make out of this is that this is a biblical, it's a joke of biblical size. Russia and China has been given all the things that we need to the tune of 90% and oil and gas that was given to the Mideast. An amazing joke. Well, I, I think you have to look that it wasn't, I think, a case of giving it to them. It's just that we didn't want to do it ourselves. So they figured, well, if you don't want to do it and you need it, we'll do it. And, and what it comes down to is, do people really want fracking and, and you know drilling rigs and mines next door to them? Or are they quite happy up until now, if it was easily available, somebody else doing that and, and it being out of sight, out of mind? So I don't think we, we made a conscious decision, oh, this was a great idea. Let's give all tungsten to China and Russia. China worked out in the 80s that they could flood a market with commodities, which would collapse prices, which would then capture market share because ultimately mines were already falling out of favor in the West in the 80s. So there was no support for them. So they all went out of business. So that was relatively straightforward. 
And ultimately, they protected their market share by manipulating prices in, in one form or another. WTO is very stringent how this is done, but they're, they're very smart in protecting their market share. And secondly, we've had no real appetite to develop our own supply chains. So, you know, I mean, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, I think is a, is a fair way to put it. Well, this brings it to a, a, a whole other level. We're talking about now on an international basis with, and, and I, I'm not talking politically, I'm talking about uh, uh, regards to our interaction with uh, other nations. That would it be not better for us to have a working system, global working system, where we're all sort of umbaya? Um, well, I mean, yes, I, I, I think theoretically that's a fantastic concept, um, but the workability of that is, well, fairly impossible. And I will probably suggest a couple of reasons, examples of, of why. If you look at the EU, you have 27 countries that are all meant to be politically and value aligned, and yet they really can't decide and agree on anything. Um, you know, or if they do, it takes a great deal of time. If we look at the response to COVID, it was a global pandemic, and yet each country went on their own merry journey, and within countries they had their own journeys as well. So there was really no uniformed approach at all, which in many ways has created, you know, part of the mess that the supply chain finds itself in. With no coordination of shutdown and no coordination of reactivation, it was, it's been a free-for-all. So yes, theoretically, from a purely philosophical point of view, you're absolutely correct. There should be a global approach given that we have a global economy to these problems. But ultimately, it's almost impossible to coordinate that because national interests, you know, or the, the electoral base of, of a country doesn't want to see mines, doesn't want to see raw materials. It, it's, it's fraught with, with issues. So, you know, I, I think, that I don't think we can rely on that's going to happen anytime soon. Lewis, I'm just curious, because of the uh, increasing demand for tungsten and rare earth, is the United States on a path to develop their own resources? Is mining going to come back? And are there sufficient deposits in the U.S. to, to fulfill demand? Well, yes and no. You, I do not envisage a return to mining uh, within domestic mining within the United States, because ultimately it doesn't really matter in many ways which side of the aisle you're from, your base does not support mines. So oil, perhaps one side, you know, obviously is, one side of the aisle is, is more support for, for energy, but mines, neither side has really come out and said this is a great idea. Um, now, this bill that's making its way through is talking about stockpiling, offtakes, which is probably a more pragmatic way of approaching this problem, and that will encourage perhaps allied countries to develop uh, mines. But <laughs> this is the thing that's, that's the catch-22. There's really not much enthusiasm in your allied countries for these things either. So just because the US doesn't really like them or the base doesn't like them doesn't necessarily mean that, say, countries in the electorates in the EU like them any more uh, than they do in the US. So this is 
I think, going to be the, the issue that, that's going to be faced by the United States. It's all very well encouraging people to develop minds overseas, but that only works if the population or, or the electorate or the government of that country will also support it. And the question is, well, if you don't want it, why should I have it? Speaking of governments, um, I, I presume that Tungsten is on the uh, strategic material list and that we must have stockpiles of uh, reserve tungsten in view of its uh, uh, critical uh, status. Uh, is that the case? Yeah, it's it's top of the it's top of the list, and it's and it's top of the list in Canada, in Japan, South Korea, uh, in the EU, uh, Australia, Russia, China. Uh, so yes, it, it is seen as absolutely fundamental. And if you think ten to twelve percent of tungsten is used in defense. Um, and yet currently, you can't actually procure tungsten, say in the EU, from, a, from an authorized company because the, the, the source of that tungsten is not transparent. So you, you find yourself in a strange situation where you can't actually make, build, and manufacture the penetrators, the, the bullets, the, the, the artillery shells, the tank shells, uh, the, these, these things they drop from drones, because the tungsten source is not transparent enough to meet the criteria set by, say, the German government in the EU. So you can see that it's rather problematic. Um, but yes, it's on that list. And that brings up a, a very interesting left hand doesn't sometimes know what the right hand is doing. So in the United States, you have the DLA, Defense Logistics Agency. It's existed since the Cold War. It's an incredible federal organization that was set up with the sole purpose of stockpiling strategic minerals and metals and products that could be consumed by American manufacturers in the event of a war, a nuclear war. So if you became an isolated island of the United States, you still had internally enough to keep the engine running. And this DLA was an extremely effective tool. It, it amassed vast amounts of stockpile across many, many strategic products. But in the last sort of 20 years, it was decided that in fact, these stockpiles are no longer necessary because we live in a global economy and they sell these stockpiles off. Not enough to impact the market, so they sell them off every three months, a couple of thousand tons here, a couple of, but you know, over 20 years, it's significantly depleted the stockpiles. But here's the interesting dilemma. Right now, the DLA is still selling strategic metals, but with the, that's with the right hand and the left hand is saying, well, we need to actually find strategic metals. So I think that, and, and government is so vast that I, I wonder that if anyone ever asked the current administration or even the previous administration who was also seeing sales under the DLA, you know, could you explain why the DLA is still selling strategic metals? I'm not sure they could answer because I don't even think they know, uh, such is the vastness of government. So it, it's, yes, it's an interesting scenario currently. Lewis, if you know, and now we know, you're saying they don't know? Well, you know, I'm only speculating they don't know, but it doesn't make sense with, if you're saying that you need to, to procure strategic metals for domestic consumption because you're concerned about the supply chain, but at the same time, the strategic metals you do have, you're selling uh, off at the DLA. So I, I can't believe they know, because why would you say we need it, but then we're still selling it? Well, that's why they, they build a $27 billion bridge to nowhere up in Alaska. Yeah, but it looks good. It's incredible the foolish things they do. And, and 
grapevine, let me know whether or not this is correct, Louis, that we sell some of it to China and then we buy it back from well, China with a tariff on it. The DLA is not allowed to sell to a non-American company. But that doesn't mean that a, an American trading company, which qualifies, can't buy the material, send it to China for tolling, and then re-import it back into the United States for consumption. So you downstream it. So you basically process it into a, a, a more of a refined product, but you have to do you do that overseas, say in China, which is the main source of the refined products. And then you re-import it back into the US for consumption by domestic consumers. So yes, that absolutely happens. So share with our audience what El Monte does. You know, how did you get into the business and, and what's El Monte doing? Well, I mean, I mean I, I'd like to come up with a great, you know, story that, you know, it was this card game in Bangkok and I just happened to get into things, <laughs> you know, because it sounds so much better. But in fact, it's because I've had a, a, a really passionate obsession with tungsten really for, I don't know, 20 plus years. I can't explain it. I just find it fascinating that a metal that does not conform to any other metal on the planet, it's a totally alien product exists and we consume it and without it most of our life would you know normal life would stop to function it's it's an extraordinary and it's a real art to process it like you know we have a mine in portugal that's going for 126 years these are fifth generation tungsten guys they've been through world wars they've seen or, or their fathers or their grandfathers or great-grandfathers it, it's a, a very passionate undertaking that we do but we develop proprietary technology to make us cost competitive with China. We produce the highest grade material in the world. We are considered to be the best operators, you know, certainly outside of China. Um, it's, it's something which we, we feel very strongly about. And as well as the fact that 99 point something percent of all of our material is, is shipped into the US. Uh, the majority of our, our board is US. I'm a naturalized American. The, we, the largest shareholder base we have is American. So we have a, a long standing relationship with our consumers in the States. And we're constantly looking to expand in transparent, well, in a transparent minds that, that can be evaluated. So we're now reopening with the world's largest tungsten mine in South Korea, formerly it was, was the world's largest, and we'll now return to being the world's largest. Um, finding a mine in a transparent, safe jurisdiction is not easy. And getting permits for that mine is not so easy either. So it, it takes a long time, but that's what our customers require. And our customers are very loyal because of that. But sometimes you do feel you are sort of going it alone. So I'm, I'm sort of happy that governments are now getting more involved in seeing that this is a problem that can be resolved without an enormous lift. And what, what would that be? This, what would be the solution? Well, I think the approach they're taking with government offtakes uh, and stockpiling is, is actually the great sort of middle line to take here. If you push mines, that means you, you, they, they, you, know, you have, if we don't change any regulations, which I don't believe they should, you're looking to make a mine somewhere between eight to 10 years from start to finish to get it up and running and working correctly. It's a decade. By the time you've gone through the permits, the reviews, the NGOs, the community, uh, you've got to comply to the highest levels of ESG. It's a long, long journey. But if you give government contracts to, to the proper companies, not fly-by-night trading companies or some guy who's got a friend who's got a friend who's a brother or a son of somebody, 
um, you actually give it to mining companies who specialize in these areas and are transparent. And you say in these offtakes, look, the United States government will buy for you from our stockpile, but this is what you have to basically show us. You have to show these projects are ESG compliance. They are respectful to the environment. You, you have to put and impose you know, a number of modern day requirements in these offtakes. Otherwise, somebody's just going to go and buy it from, you know, <laughs> somewhere that you don't want to be buying from. Uh, so I, I think that solution is probably the most elegant for the government and, and has the least tripwires in it. Pushing domestic uh, production of raw materials is fraught with drama. And especially that the first mines you turn to are brownfields, mines that were open and now closed. And they have all kinds of environmental legacies left over. And can you imagine that the government gets involved in one of these and there's, a, I don't know, a tailings dam spill? I mean, it'd just be a disaster. So it's better to, to essentially throw the grenade back to, to people like myself and say, okay, we need X amount of tungsten every year. This is your offtake. If you tick these boxes and you can provide us tungsten on these conditions in the sense of ESG, then we will buy from you for, I don't know, a decade, just say for example. And, and, and so I think that's probably the direction the United States is going and, and will ultimately end up. That sounds like a solution. And who would have thunk that tungsten was such an important factor in our lives? Well, I, I think in many ways, a government and, and our, our, our customers, who are all very large blue chip companies, like to keep all the fly-by-night people out. They don't want a speculation. It, it's so intrinsically important to, to what they do. I mean, you know, you can't produce ammunition for the United States you know, armed forces without tungsten. You can't produce an artillery shell, a shell for, for a Navy boat for a tank, it, it just because they replaced all the uranium tips with tungsten, um, uh, as an example. At the same time, you can't put a satellite, the guidance system, the satellite has a small gyroscopic weight in it, which is a tungsten. So your satellite doesn't work. The vibrator in your phone, uh, your screen that you look at, a semiconductor, you can't manufacture a semiconductor without tungsten gas, which is carbon dioxide. So it's everywhere, but it's actually a declining resource. It's very difficult to produce. And I think in many ways, the ball got dropped because China essentially and Russia became the two dominant players in this sector, in a sector that is only increasing in its strategic uh, importance. And, and you've got to tread carefully uh, here, because if you have a big fight now with one of these two countries in, in real terms of raw materials, what are you going to do? So you've got to play nice, come up with a strategy that's not going to upset everybody while you uh, develop a longer term you know, program. Wow, that's a good start for the week. Instead of your coffee, I should do it. Maybe yeah, it's an interesting story because you want to go to uh, Russia, for instance, and say, excuse me, could we buy some of your tungsten? We're going to make artillery shells. We'll send them back over to you. Yes, but the irony is, is that the, the predominant supplier of tungsten to the, to the European munitions manufacturer, which is a big German company, has been buying their tungsten from Russia for 25 years. So there's a very good chance that currently as we speak, there are uh, Russian tungsten tipped shells being thrown at Russia. 
So they're in exactly the same position. <laughs> so, so. That's, a, that's amazing. Maybe we should send uh, uh, Madame uh, Pelosi over to China to talk about uh, Taiwan, and then we we can just have a merry old throw bombs and well, that, that would certainly that would certainly uh, sort of put the cat amongst the pigeons. But I think at this moment, the raw materials are not under threat from Russia. They're still finding their way to market. They're just going a different route. Um, I think the world is is sensible enough to know that you can rock the boat so much, but you don't want to cut your nose to spite your face, especially until you found a solution, which at the moment you're still working on. When you found a solution, you can get a little bit more kind of, you know, what on earth are you doing? But until then, you've got to sort of tread lightly. And, and I think that's unfortunately the sensible approach because... 90% of all raw materials produced in Russia are for export. And you can't replace that nickel. You can't replace that palladium or that platinum or that tungsten or that gold. You just can't replace it. There's nothing to, to pick up the slack. So, you know, and 10% of the world's oil, you know, no, energy comes from. So you've just got to come up with a strategy that makes sense, doesn't upset too many people on the way. And people, I think, have to say, look, this is not ideal. We don't agree with what's going on. We have to act, but we just can't blow ourselves up in the, same, in this, in the process. I'm sure you're aware of the um, explosion in the nickel market uh, as of recent, uh, where nickel uh, only four or five years ago was selling at $12,000 a ton. Uh, it was recently at $40,000 a ton and then went to $120,000 per ton uh, and literally closed down the nickel exchange at the London Metal Exchange for several weeks. Um, all of these things that we've been talking about really are uh, what's going to cause some major problems in our uh, lifestyles and so on because nickel also is a uh, very much needed. Uh, Absolutely. And, and a vast amount of nickel comes out of Russia. Um, the right. price didn't actually spike because of Russia because the record was still getting out. It, right. it spiked because there's, 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 there's a great deal of money sitting on the sidelines looking to make bets. And they, the, the poor old London Metal Exchange, LME, their system is set up uh, essentially for some level of speculation, but predominantly it's used to hedge you know, forward pricing between consumers and, and suppliers. And, and as I said, the poor old LME suddenly found themselves front and center by the world's speculators, billions, trillions of dollars flooding into a system that was never designed to, 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 to deal with that. Uh, and I think they actually managed really well considering the, the assault they came under um, because everyone was making the bet, but I mean, they, you know, given what happened, I, I think they, they got through it relatively well. But no one, no one could have planned for that. And and um, I mean, I, I think all commodities have risen quite dramatically in the last eighteen months, in twenty four months. And and it's COVID is one contributing factor. Inflation is another. Uh, but demand, the 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 supply demand dynamic has altered absolutely because of this push by most Western governments to a greener future. It means taking older industrial approaches and replacing them with an entirely new approach. And that transition from old to new is gonna require a great deal of raw materials to, to bring it into fruition. And, and 
generally a free market works in some kind of equilibrium. There's a balance between the supply and demands. You know, you have inflationary increases in demand every year. And so supply in the way picks that slack up. But when you have this enormous transition towards a different future, and not just in the United States, but across every, pretty much every Western democracy, it, it's, it's having a profound disruptive effect on the supply chain. Do you sleep well at nights, Lewis? <laughs> yeah, like a baby. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist. You know, my, my oh, view is I have great confidence in the market. No, I mean, no, I'm an optimist. I mean, I think people have to understand that the, the problems that we all face and just work through the solution. You know, I think nowadays is the tendency to run around like a headless chicken, um, you, you know, and, and, and be in a state of complete panic that never fix anything. Um, you, you essentially know that there is a problem. You know that there are a number of different solutions. Um, you know that you've got to tread diplomatically light in your approach. Okay, so all these things you know. Okay, so let's you know stop kind of complaining about you know, oh how did this happen? Who's responsible? It's not important. Um, you, we now just have to you know move forward uh, with a plan and execute it because China didn't get into this place where they are right now of dominance because last week they decided there's nothing better to do but let's dominate the supply chain. It's a 30-year program they've worked and they've worked it extremely well and executed it extremely well. And they've stayed true to that plan. So, you know, I, I think there's, I sleep fine because I, I believe in the free market. I believe that the, the market and capital will find the solution uh, very effectively. It'll just take a little time. Everyone be patient, don't panic. You, you know, we're, we're gonna get there. Sounds good to me. Thank you, Lewis. Tim? I would, I would agree with you, Lewis. Uh, better that the free market find it than the government finds it because they don't do as well at it. <laughs> I know that that is true, but, but if the government gives the free market some tools to work with, rather that's also helpful so you know whether it be that you know through offtakes or stockpiling these are tools that the free market can work with and i you're absolutely right if you look at governments say you, they saw it in japan they saw it in south korea where government tried to directly get involved in building their supply chain it, it, you know governments they think that they know what you know dodgy people are about they, they we always talk about the swamp and all these things but believe me there's no quicker way to lose money than a mine it is a giant hole in the ground. <laughs> and, and I look at what happened in, say, South Korea, and, and, and they made a really big push to, to have a vertical supply chain from overseas projects. And they just met every shyster you can possibly imagine. I mean, it was like, you know, every dodgy guy and his dog came and made a pitch for the world's greatest whatever it was. It was like, it was a snake oil salesman's convention. And, and the government, you know, they approach it Culturally, they're so they're so correct and so polite, and they said, you know, they, they actually trusted people with initials after their name, and it, it cost them billions. So, uh, governments shouldn't get involved, I think, because ultimately, it's not their skill set. Give give the industry give industry market some tools, see what we can do. Here, here, I second that. And Lewis, we want to thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Incredible insight into tungsten. Love what El Monte is doing. So keep up the good work. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much. Thanks, Lou. Thank you. And Thank you. one other last point. 
because it's often my segue, your website address. Oh, it's um, www.almonte.com. Simple enough. So we would encourage our viewers and listeners to go to almonte.com and while you're surfing the web, stop by jacketmediaco.com where you can find this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio and all of the other podcasts we produce and some new affiliates we'll be bringing on board to expand the information available to our listeners and viewers. Thanks for being on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.